Familia, sometimes we need a moment to reflect, remember, and renew our understanding. The day Elizabeth and I recorded our interview with Obispo Jose Garcia, we left the record button on and just talked about the interviews we finished. What you're going to hear is part of our conversation where we wrestle with the themes of power, partnerships, and pain that came up in the first three episodes. This gets real, but that's why we thought you should hear it. We also want to hear from you, your thoughts, your reactions. So remember to send in your questions and reactions for our final episode of the season. You can send in your preguntas on the World Last Spoken website following the link in the show notes or by calling 312-725-2995. That's 312-725-2995. Leave us a 30-second voicemail with your name, city, y pregunta, and we'll discuss it on the last episode of the season. Now, let's reflect together on the difficulties of mestizaje. Something that we had not talked about before that came up here, right? Because before we were talking mainly about... Um, mainly about uh, Latino response to all of these pieces. Here, we're challenging the dominant culture pastors to how it is that they're going to respond to this. Yeah. Yeah. That came up That came up a couple times here. And it also came up a bit with Agustin and Obipo Marcial. They they also, a few times, said, hey, uh, La, Iglesia, La Iglesia Anglo needs to think about some of these pieces related to their history. I remember that phrase coming up a couple times with them. So it is interesting that it's bleeding in that direction a couple times. Well, what do you think about that? I think that we need to bring this up now, that you and I should um, have a, a real conversation about that. I think we need to talk about colonialism. I think the bishop just spoke about what it means um, to deal with the fact that uh, the dominant culture sees us as the little people over here. Yeah, the little island without resources. I love the way he put that. <laughs> that uh, there's been the the patronizing, right, of the mm-hmm. Latino people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they're going to, you know, part of what you have to think about is they're going to take these young people who are going to become professionals. Right. And they're going to give offering to them. Right. And then the Latina church is going to continue to be poor because they're not going to uh, be able to um, receive Yes. The um, offerings of their own young people, right? That's right. Que ellos los están criando. Right. Yo estoy criando a este muchacho para que se vaya a la iglesia de ella, right? Mm-hmm. Y le dé los chavos al blanco que está allá. Chavo, tiempo, talento, everything. Yeah. Everything. Y entonces, la primera generación que tiene unas necesidades sigue pobre y sigue mm-hmm. chava para ser mm-hmm. bien puertorriqueña, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, that's a piece for us to think about, right? Yeah, it is. We, we need to talk about what happens in that partnership. So for me, what should happen in that partnership is that um, we take a look at what's coming into the coffers of that church and how we create equity for the two congregations. Mm. Because equity is not based on... Bottles and bottles and, you know, chinas por chinas y manzana por manzana, right? Okay. Equity yeah. is based on lo que yo tengo, yo lo traigo, y lo que tú tienes, tú lo traes. And then we divide that up. De tal manera que todo el mundo tenga lo que se necesita, right? So I'm giving up the richness and the talent and so forth 
de mis jóvenes y tú los tienes. Mientras tanto, si tenemos un partnership, ¿qué tú vas a traer para acá? What, you know, what is it that you're going to give us back over here? That's a great question. Because this church continues to deal with needs of people who are coming in that are much greater than some of the needs on the other end. Yeah. And, they're, and me... they don't have something to, to deal with those needs. That's right. It, it makes me think of, you know, white churches have some white churches, not all, some have white churches have a sense for this. They 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 uh, they know what's happening because I'm thinking of the rural and urban divide that's happening. Uh, there's that book hollowing out the middle uh, that talks a lot about how rural communities are raising talented gifted white children tend to be white who are then moving into the cities getting an education but not returning home and so the financial benefit of those young people the uh, talent benefit of those young people is not returning back it's a similar problem so some white churches can hear this and and say oh yeah we feel that frustration we can relate to that frustration and i think that that I think that helps give us a bridge to say, hey, you also know that this is not helpful. So so what do we need to both do so that our young people stay tethered to their their homes, right? I say that in entre comillas, their homes, uh, tethered to whether it be a white rural community or whether it be a Puerto Rican urban community or whatever that context might be, right? Tethered to their homes in a way that they can benefit those homes as well as be part of this new kind of culture that they're creating together. Which then still leaves us so that it's not only about money. Right. It still leaves us at the point of how do we learn to have these conversations at the same table? Right. And it still leaves us as the Latino church um, at the place where we really do talk about, you know, hey, if we're serious about keeping our young people, you know, what does that take? And it takes moving at a faster pace than cada cinco años, right? Yeah. Este, so, son cosas que tenemos que hablar because nos estamos quedando solamente con lo del idioma y el estilo de adoración. But right. now, this is where real power resides. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the issue of real power resides at this other place. What is at stake? when we're not forming our own leaders. Yeah, I, I think the culprit in this that we haven't named is the educational institutions, right? There is a price paid when those students move away. I, I am a perfect example of this. I moved away from Kissimmee, Florida, where I was grounded. I was involved in ministry. I was a church leader, involved at the youth group, doing music, everything else. I moved away. I had detached myself from those things, pursuing, you know, Bible and seminary education. And I have not returned to that community. Now, I'm, I finally have recognized the woes of that and have connected myself to a similar community here in Chicago. But it, it took me... It took me far too long to realize what, what had happened and the price that I paid and that my community paid, a price that's never named, right? It's not the tuition cost. It's something else. And, and it's, it's a price that's often not, not named, explored, or recognized. And I think that's what we're – this is the, the hidden culprit, right? The, the hidden uh, character in the story that I think we need to address and figure out how does that character play a role in this? I think that we um, we also need to realize that the the issue of language 
is an emotional issue because of the trauma of leaving what is familiar, right? This immigration has not been because people said, oh, you know what? Déjame ir a Estados Unidos a vivir unos cinco, diez años, a ver cómo es allá, right? <laughs> it hasn't been a choice. This issue of immigration has been a choice for livelihood, a choice for survival. And therefore, it's been a forced choice, right? That's right. And in a forced choice, there's so much that's unresolved. And so to have... To hold on to language is to, to, to do the best that you can to hold on to your soul and to know that your kids won't or can't uh, relate to your language says, oh, my God, what's going to happen here, right? Because if, that, the, if that's the case, then it means you're probably going to marry somebody who doesn't speak Spanish either. And right. then how am I going to relate not only to you, but then to your wife, to your husband, and then to my nietos, oh my God, un nieto que no sepa pedir la bendición, Dios mío, ¿cómo es eso? <laughs> yeah, so then we're dealing with a life where we can't imagine that life. We can't. Yeah, these are the deeper levels. No, and it becomes desperate because we don't know how we're going to live into that life. And we've counted on the church as being, you know, the, the one entity that helps us to pass down these values and things. Mm -hmm. And if that's not going to happen, that's pretty depressing. Yeah, I I struggle with the way forward, especially as it relates to what you brought up earlier, the relationship or partnership between Hispanic pastors and, and say, the dominant culture white pastor, because this is a few levels deep, and I don't get the sense that white pastors are ready to even have this conversation. They just want to know if they want to have a if they need to have a Spanish song during worship and a translator from the stage, right? Those are the kinds of questions that they want to ask. They they they're not quite ready, I think, at least from my experience training and working with Anglo white pastors. I don't I don't know that they're always ready to ask these deeper questions of, "Hey, the younger the Puerto Rican that you have in your youth group, he is all happy and contento." But you don't realize what you're causing to the family that you don't see coming with him on Sunday mornings. That, that, that's what you're getting at. Is <clears throat> what happens with that young person further out along the way, like you just shared, mm -hmm. right? When he is a professional and he sees other people who can connect to his language, to his culture, <laughs> and they may not even be from his culture, Okay. It's sad when you see a, a, a person who is not Latino knowing more Spanish than you as a Latino. That's right. That causes you a particular pain. I don't care who you are. It causes you a particular pain, right? Yeah. And a kind of a shame. Yeah. So, you know, further out in life, we still deal with those pieces. Yeah. And we talked about that in a previous episode. I read that quote of that uh, that young millennial influencer who said, I'm learning Spanish, but I'm tired. So essentially, she said, I'm tired of being criticized by my own people. Karen, in, in our last episode, talked about the one professor that was a missionary who spoke better Spanish, who's correcting the papers, right? The grammar of the papers of some of her students, right? It, it is, that stings. I know people in, a, there, was, there was a particular group of people my age at a congregation here in Chicago 
that whenever the issue of language came up, fueron todo puertorriqueño nacido aquí en Chicago, whenever the issue of language came up, body language made it very clear that they were immediately uncomfortable. They, they, these are Puerto Ricans who didn't want to talk about whether or not they spoke Spanish. They didn't want to have that conversation because there's now, you know, year on year on year of being pressurized, ridiculed, exiled, if you will, from their own ethnic community, but not feeling, you know, exiled from one and not welcome to another. That's the, that's the trap, right? Exiled from one and, and not yet attached to something new. And like I said, that this is rough. I don't, it's a rough scenario that, that uh, it gets complicated to try to resolve. But guys like Jose, I think, are giving us examples. Mm-hmm. I think if we go back to um, Daniel's words, you know, are you going to be enculturated into your Latinidad? Are you enculturated into your faith? Or will be, there be a union of all people, you know, speaking about a multicultural church? <clears throat> um, within each one of those, you can have, they don't have to be either or. I can be enculturated into my Latinidad and also into my faith. Yes, I can be um, acculturated into faith, but also into my Latinidad. And who does that? You know, it could be different ways of doing that. And then in a, in a multicultural church, um, styles of leadership have a lot to be said, right? Um, there are African-American churches that are becoming multicultural. <laughs> there are white churches and, and there are Latino churches becoming multicultural. Um, but the style of leadership, what is it? And these are things that we haven't really um, talked about. It's just interesting. You know, these things are just emerging and we, we give them, we, we stamp them and give them a label. But if we look deeper, what's taking place and what hasn't been reflected? Yeah, what's implicit in what you're saying is I, I had an interview with uh, Sandra Van Opstal. I think you know her, Sandra Van Opstal. I did an interview with her where we reviewed her book, The Next Worship, Glorifying God in a Diverse World, I believe is the subtitle. And while interviewing her, it was really interesting. Style of leadership came up because she said, hey, there are a lot of churches that are pursuing a multicultural model, but the style of leadership remains essentially an Anglo style of leadership. And she said, what it does is it really limits, it handicaps the ability of truly being multicultural. And uh, it's interesting that Daniel Rodriguez in his book, the, the one that we've been referring to often in this podcast, the one that I think I've had the worst habit of referring to over and over and over, but uh, it's really good. So hint, hint to the audience. It's a really good book. You should check it out. But in the book, he points out that one of the models that he has seen work best in terms of a multicultural model is a model where the base leadership style is of the ethnic minority. I found that surprising that when the base leadership was minority and it evolved, it's something. It's interesting. I wanted to ask Jose about this too because that unintentionally happened in his world of work. Uh, Obispo Garcia, right? He talked about how he absorbed the Anglo congregations into his leadership when the other bishop, the Anglo bishop, retired or moved on. And I'm curious as to see how that integration went on because I think there's something to that that when the the under-resourced or under-privileged, they're given a, a significant place in power. They have a better sense of what the deeper needs are than maybe the one who is dominant. Is that fair to say? 
I think it is. And <clears throat> part of why it's fair to say is not because we happen to be Latino. Part of why it's fair to say is because ethnic uh, persons, we've had to learn our culture, our ways, as well as the dominant culture ways. So how we've grown up and how we've gotten used to uh, navigating a professional world, uh, a church world, if that's our professional world, you know, just the world in general, is that we've taught ourselves how to be culturally competent, how to be bicultural, <clears throat> how to be multicultural, okay? That's a part of how we grew up. But if you are from the dominant culture and you've not had to engage on a regular basis with a different culture and you've not had to engage with um, structures that are not what you are used to, are not uh, that you can't walk up into them and, and say, oh, yeah, you know, I can expect X, Y, and Z to happen because that's just how the world is. If all of a sudden you walked into a different structure, you have to figure out how to do that. And you've not grown up in that and you don't necessarily have the skills. For you and me, we do this every day. We do it without thinking about it. And then people go, wow, how'd you do that? And we got to stop and listen and go, what? Do what? Like, this is what I do all the time, right? Yeah, that's right. Because, because of that dynamic, and it's a dynamic of power. Because of that dynamic, that's what you've had. So when the bishop talked about being able to have uh, that, that part of his job was to help people to become um, culturally competent, that's huge. That's exactly what we need to do. We need to learn to be culturally competent. Yeah, I do think one of the things that he pointed out that I think we want to be mindful of is that there is a there's a good form of growing in multiculturalism, right? Those that learn really well to live and walk between worlds like you and I have been talking about doing here. But I have also seen students who you know, fall off the track, if you will, uh, minority students who have a situation of trauma, something that happens in, with a dominant culture person that, that causes such damage that they're incapable of going forward, or others who choose to abandon their ethnicity. They learn that they have to step between two worlds, and because they're so worried about uh, their position in it all, they abandon one and choose the other, right? And so there are, there are pitfalls along the way for both groups, not just for the dominant culture group, but also for those minority pastors and leaders. There, there are pitfalls for them as well as it relates to their own gaining of and growing in cultural competency. And <clears throat> we should understand that if you find yourself, if you're a, 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 a person who finds themselves in one space today, <clears throat> you don't have to stay in that space necessarily. Um, if you find yourself that you've assimilated and you're comfortable there, you can choose to move from there. If you're a person who is um, on that range of becoming multicultural, right? There's a range. That's right. <clears throat> I don't want to become so into my own culture that I become anti other cultures, mm -hmm. you see? And some persons in their journey, they do that, right? First, it's like, hey, you know, I want to be white. Then it's like, I want to be, you know, I become more Latino than all Latinos in the world. All right. And we, we do that pendulum thing. 
Okay, that's part that's of right. the journey. That is part of the journey. <laughs> it is the same part of the journey. So to be truly multicultural is when you want for those that you don't consider your people to have the same things that you would want for your people. When Martin Luther King Jr. <clears throat> got to that point, he became truly dangerous. When Martin Luther King Jr. decided that he wasn't only advocating for the African-American community, but that he was advocating for the Vietnamese, that's when his own people couldn't handle it completely. And that's when in the United States, it was like, okay, now he's gone too far. Now he's gone too far, right? Same thing happened with Malcolm X. Malcolm X had a rhetoric that was very anti-white. When on his own pilgrimage, to, when he did the Hajj, and he found that Muslims were persons who were from all over the world, etc., and he returned with a different understanding of that, an understanding that was embracing of all, an understanding that allowed for there to be white allies, um, he became dangerous too. So, yeah. so you see, becoming multicultural in the true sense is to become someone who can embrace all peoples, who can love all peoples and who wants true social justice, not only someone who becomes an advocate for their own people. Amen. It reminds me of my professor, Peter Cha. I've mentioned him a couple of times now on the podcast up at Trinity. He tells a story of when he was hired at Trinity. He was, I believe, if I remember the story correctly, so I may be missing some of these details here, but uh, it re I remember him saying that he was the first I believe Asian American professor hired, maybe even the first minority professor. It might have been that um, to that level. But the the part of the story that I remember that shocked me is he had Korean students approach him early on in his tenure there as a professor, approach him and say, "Hey, we would really love that you would advocate for us for these needs." And they laid out their needs. And I remember that he he tells the story that he said he asked them for some time to pray and think about the things that they had shared. And he took his time, he prayed about it, pursued the Lord, and then they returned for their follow-up meeting with him. And he said, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm in support of and I want to be supporting of your needs, but I need to advocate for the needs of the African-American student as well. And I need to advocate for the student. And so he eventually evolved into starting the Mosaic program where he integrated and worked with the minority students as well as created a multicultural setting for the, for the school and became this beautiful thing because he didn't stick to strictly his group right he was mindful of the needs of others and i think that's what, what you're hit, hinting at that that we need to be puerto rican and right we need to be uh, anglo and and we need to be ready for and always receptive to the possibilities of adding and bringing on something else that's part of that is that right it's about seeing ourselves as neighbors rather than other Right. That's right. <clears throat> and there's a spirit of otherness. Well, in the Bible, um, you never speak about otherness. You speak about neighbor. We are to refer to each other as neighbor. It is human nature. Let it be understood. It is human nature to do the othering part. The, however, the the commands of the Lord always push us toward a greater sense of who we all are in our humanity and that is to push us towards seeing each other 
as neighbor. And I think that's important in this um, conversation. Yeah, more more than neighbor, brother, right? It goes as far as making us family in the Bible, at least for the church. We 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 go to that level of of love and care for one another that it goes all the way to the extent of a family, right? We're brother and sister. I love that the Hispanic church, hermano such and such, hermana such and such, right? It's part of our language. It's built into the the fellowship and style of the church that we would reiterate for one another. Mexicano, puertorriqueño, dominicano, it doesn't matter. Hermana such and such, hermano such and such, right? That we would constantly be reminded of the fact that we are brother and sister. I think that that is a beautiful piece. And um, thinking about how we take that to greater depth is important. That it's an embrace. Yeah. Getting to that level is the hard part because there, there are many many who would resist this. That's the part that I'm concerned about. There, Those that would resist this. Uh, in our next episode, we, you know, we're, we're going to talk to people about justice, but uh, I'm curious to see how they're going to bring up the the response to, right? The the way of dealing with the resistance piece because like Nuestro Hermano Jose Garcia said, right? Uh, we need some immersion. We need people to realize that this is a real thing. I'm looking for, I have a quote here that's really, really interesting from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer he, in his book, Life Together. It's a very popular book. Many, many people love Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but I'm going to read this because I think it'll help our audience see why this is such an important part or why the fellowship piece uh should run as deep as it does. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, he says this, the physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. That's what he first says. Then he follows up. The serious Christian set down for the first time in Christian community is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and try to realize it. That's interesting, right? He says, the, the very serious Christian, the first time they join a fellowship, the first time they join a church, they're going to try to make that community look like what they imagine a Christian community should look like. And then this is the part of the quote that I think is the most fascinating. He says this, But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams, just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. I found that quote to be shocking, right? That he pointed out that we should experience that disillusionment and recognize that this is, it is an act of God's grace that we continue together and that we don't other one another. Well, because it's about <clears throat> continuing to say, Jesus is Lord. This doesn't belong to us, right? And that's that's a lot of what takes place. We want a sense of belonging, but this doesn't belong to us. And we're going to have to base our sense of belonging on things that are not always comfortable. Yeah. And, um, and that's hard to imagine, right? Because that means that we have to be spirit-led. That's where the bishop was telling us. He was like, you know, you need to know your heart. You need to interact. Um, you need to show love and support for other people, um, and that—that's that's a different place. It's a place of humility. It's a place of servanthood. The humility that Christ sends to see uh, exemplifies to us is that of kenosis, the emptying of the self, and 
the notion that Bonhoeffer is speaking about where we have to be disillusioned is the place where we take off all of these expectations, let them go, grieve them if we need to, and then move forward. So um, how a pastor spiritually uh, leads a congregation to that through that place of disillusionment so that we can come out uh, with a sense of vision on the other side of what it means to be a people of God where Jesus is Lord and not uh, we're not lording over the church, over my congregation, etc. That's a whole other place to be. And it's a hard space to come to when we're dealing with um, healing from the traumas of uh, immigration. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. I agree. Doctors John Kessler and John Tucker, uh, they wrote a book called Altogether Different. They proposed three practices for pastors, uh, three practices that the pastors should follow and that the pastors should help form in their congregation so that congregation members uh, could also engage in these practices. And I think they're going to help us navigate some of this trauma related to immigration. They're going to help us to, as the book suggests, be altogether different. And uh, I think they might help us here in our discussion. The three practices are this. Number one, showing preference for others. Showing preference for others. Two, intentional self-denial. Elizabeth, that's what you've been talking about. It's a great deal here when you talked about emptying ourselves in the great kenosis. Uh, and then three, gracious withdrawal. This is where we say, hang on, I got to step back for a moment and reflect a little further. Gracious withdrawal. I found those three practices to be helpful. I found that book altogether different to be real helpful. Um, but I think that these are some of the resources that we need to think about. And these are some of the practices that I think we need to build into our congregations that we might live a healthy life together. I agree. <clears throat> I remember um, I grew up in a multicultural church because it was a Latino church. And the multiculturalness right. of that church, right? And I remember that one of our practices for the gracious uh, withdrawal was to take up, when I was about to jump on you and say, no, tú no sabes lo que estás hablando, or, you know, something like that, I would have to step back. This was the practice where everybody, the pastor would say, step back, take a deep breath, and then say, dime más. I like that. More. I like that. Because you, he said, usually if you're coming out of, you know, a place of passion, a place where you're about to eat somebody up, <laughs> it means that you don't have enough information. And so what you need to do is just back away and say, dime más. That's really good. Well, we're going to tell our audience a whole lot more in future episodes to come. Stay tuned for our episode, Justicia, Why It Matters. It's the fourth episode in our series of the Mestizo podcast. And uh, we will make sure to be attuned to you. So leave us comments, share, subscribe, do all those good things.